Amen. That's very nice. Thank you. We're going to begin a journey tonight, a journey toward an understanding and a building of our understanding of spiritual intimacy. And this has been a, a good study for me, and uh, quite honestly, as I, I got so wrapped up in it uh, this week, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but what we're going to do in these first few messages is define what it means to have a philosophy of life that is God-oriented. And then we're going to talk about what intimacy is as opposed to what it's not. And then we're going to get into specifics, about five messages into it, about specific things that you and I can do and things that we need to understand if we're going to get into an intimate relationship with the Lord. My favorite cartoonist is Doug Marlett. That's no surprise to any of you who draws the kudzu cartoons. And Reverend Will Be Done, if there is a person... By the way, there is a Will Be Done. There's a, there's a cemetery marker in Michigan somewhere for Reverend Will Be Done. And I'm trying to get somebody to take a picture of it because there actually was a Will Be Done. But uh, I, I love the cartoon strip where Will Be Done is down on his knees in the prayer position. And he says, Dude! And the next frame is a zap of lightning from heaven. And then the next frame is this little pile of dust with two eyeballs. And this box over the top of it says, The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't like to be called dude. <laughs> the psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you... I desire nothing on earth. I've not met too many people that could say that Psalm 73 and verse 25 is their life verse. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth except God. That's all I want. That is a life pursuit. It is a life direction. It is a picture of a man who was yearning for God, who wanted to go deeper with God. Augustine said in his work, The City of God, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every man that only Christ can fill. They, he was referring there to salvation, but I also think that refers to our sanctification. Sometimes we get saved and then we try to fill the holes in our heart with other things, things of this world things that are temporary and earthly rather than things that are eternal. And so I want to take you quickly, and, and we won't look at any of these passages in this first point, but I want to take you quickly through some references that give us insight into the people in the Bible who knew God intimately. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 22 and 24 says that Enoch walked with God James chapter 2 and verse 23 says that Abraham became God's friend. Genesis 32, 30 tells us that Jacob saw God face to face. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend according to Exodus 33 and verse 11. Gideon saw the angel of the Lord face to face in Judges chapter 6 and verse 22. 
David was a man after God's own heart, according to Acts 13, verse 22. Daniel found favor with God, according to Daniel 10, verses 11 and 19. Mary found favor with God in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. These were people who found favor, who saw God face to face, who had an intimate knowledge and an intimate relationship with the Lord God of heaven. Now, the question would have to come, is that only for a few? I don't believe that the Bible teaches it's only for a few. But it is only for those who want it. It's only for those who have a passion for it in their lives. I used to say when I was in student ministry that Jesus didn't have any favorites. Jesus didn't love and doesn't love and never has loved anybody any more than He loves you. Jesus does not have favorites, but He does have intimates. People that He is intimate with. You take the 12 disciples, all of them called, all of them chosen, and yet when you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, when you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, when you look at key moments that are recorded in the Gospel of John and in other places, you see three names rise to the surface. Peter, James, and John. It doesn't mean that Jesus said, Peter, James, and John are my pets. I like them more than I like you guys. We have the same personality. We like the same team. We, we go to the same places. We like the same kind of food. So I really like them more than I like you. No, the key is, is that there was something that is not recorded in Scripture, but there was something in Peter, James, and John that wanted to go deeper than the other disciples. They put themselves in positions. They ran risk. They took chances. And we criticize Peter for putting his foot in his mouth, but at least he was in the middle of it. At least he was trying. He was wanting something more. He was wanting to be more intimate with God. And something in their life allowed them to get closer. I would submit to you that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, but some of us like to look at the cross from a distance and others want to be in the shadow of it. And where you are in position to the cross determines where you and I are in position of intimacy. But because we cannot be intimate with God if we are not in direct relationship with the cross. Now intimacy is a word that's become endangered. Sex has become nothing more than a physical act. There's no sense of loyalty. Marriage is a prenuptial agreement. Euthanasia and abortion are the values of the day. We don't honor the unborn and we don't honor the elderly. And because of that, our value system has watered down, diluted, almost destroyed this word intimacy what it means to be intimate with God. But there are three pictures in the New Testament that tell us that God is intimate with us and desires to be intimate with us. The first picture is the shepherd and his sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. They know when I'm speaking to them. 
He said, I'm willing to lay down my life for my sheep. There was an intimate relationship that we don't understand in our culture today, but in that culture and in that world, there was a knowledge, an immediate knowledge of the intimacy of the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. The shepherd willing to lay his life on the line to protect his helpless sheep. We are protected by his rod and staff that comfort us. And so through the Bible, you see this image of God as our shepherd and we as sheep. The second image he uses is that of husband and wife. In Jeremiah and in Isaiah, God is referred to as Israel's bridegroom. In Ephesians 5, the church is called the bride of Christ. Christ took the most intimate relationship that a person can have, that is of marriage, and He pictured His desire for His relationship with His body, the church, as an intimate, knowing relationship. Nothing hidden. That kind of intimacy. The third picture is that of a father and a child. God is pictured for us as our heavenly Father. The prodigal, the story of the prodigal is given not to show us that there are prodigals, but the story of the prodigal is given to tell us that God loves His children even when they stray from Him. And so God has given us a picture of intimacy. Now, there's a personal need for intimacy. We can have it pictured for us all day long, and there's a tension between intimacy with God and what we will sometimes fall into is a warm, fuzzy kind of relationship with God, and on the other hand, a holy reverence and awe for God. And that is a tension that is healthy because it keeps us in balance. While He is my heavenly Father, I also knew that with my earthly Father, if I smarted off to Him, I was going to hear about it. Everybody remember that? I mean, He's Dad... But he's dad. He's dad. Hey, dad. But he's, yes, sir, dad. Why? Because there was intimacy, but there was reverence for his authority and reverence for his position and also for that belt he had hanging in the closet. That was reverence for that too. But you see, there's this tension and we are called to keep in balance and intimacy without losing reverence and reverence without forsaking intimacy. I want to read you a quote by A.W. Tozer. It should be on the screen for you. You and I are in little, our sins accepted, what God is in large. Being made in His image, we have within us the capacity to know Him. In our sins, we lack only the power. The moment the Spirit has quickened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. It is, however, not an end but an inception for now begins the glorious pursuit the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. 
scorned indeed by the two easily satisfied religionists, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. I would think if there is a phrase that should describe us as God's people is that we are children of the burning heart. It is a burning desire within us to know God. Now, there, this has to be a life objective because it, it is the answer to why am I here? Why was I born? What is my purpose in life? Why did God make me the way He made me? Why did God leave me here after I was saved? <clears throat> so what I want to share with you tonight and next week is basically my philosophy of life that has driven me and by which I measure what I do over the last at least 25 years. The thing that I kind of mark everything by, I evaluate everything by, I judge whether I say yes to an opportunity or no to an opportunity, I, I decide whether I should speak there or not speak there. These are the kind of things that, that come under the grid of my philosophy because my philosophy determines my values and my purpose. So let me give you my philosophy statement. Now the first half of it is applicable to anybody. The last half of it is just applicable to me. Mine can't be yours and yours can't be mine. But this is what I have worked through as my life purpose. And I will repeat it for you several times so you can get it. It is to know, love, and glorify God. To know, love, and glorify God. And to be used of Him to make disciples, mature the church, and advocate revival. To know, love, and glorify God. And to be used of Him to make disciples, mature the church, and advocate revival. So when I explain to somebody, what, what are you here for? My purpose here is to know, love, and glorify God. And because of God's call on my life and the uniqueness of that call and that I am called to full-time ministry and because of the gifts that He has given me and because of the specific gift of profit that He has given me, my role is to make disciples, mature the church, and to advocate revival. The advocating of revival comes out of my experiences that I've had in the people that I've gotten to know and the people that have influenced me, like Vance Havner and Ron Dunn and Bill Stafford and other people like that. And so over the course of my life, this has evolved into my life philosophy. What drives me, what motivates me, what makes me want to get out of bed in the morning is not a paycheck. It is not a position. It is to know and to love and to glorify God and to be used of Him to make disciples, to mature the church, and to advocate revival. Now, spiritual intimacy begins with a desire to know God, and that's all we're going to deal with tonight is the knowing God aspect. What we're going to do tonight and next week is to do the know, love, glorify, and be used of Him and what that means.
to know God. There is a God and He can be known. Now there are skeptics who say, you can't know God. I believe Scripture says you can. And you can know Him intimately. And some will argue if there is a God, you can't know Him, or you can't know Him, or you, maybe somebody can know Him, but, but you can't know Him. And so there are several questions here that you'd have to ask. If you say there's a God and He can't be known, are you telling me that you've been to every corner of the universe and beyond and can say without a shadow of a doubt that all the expanse of the universe, you have found no evidence of God? Do not the heavens declare the glory of God? Isn't that what the Scripture says? So the scientist that looks through a telescope, he may think he discovered a star. All he discovered was the glory of God. He discovered that God placed a star in the sky. That star's been there before that telescope was ever created. It's always been there. We just discovered it, but God made it. So there is a God who can be known. Now, we haven't been everywhere. We don't know everything. And just because God's invisible, quote-unquote, to us, does that mean He is less a reality? There are atoms in this room right now. How many of you can count them right now? Let's just start. Anybody count all these atoms in the room? Does that make them any less real? Choir, yes or no? They're just as real. We're in a room where the climate's comfortable enough where you can breathe out and nobody can see your breath. If you get in a certain temperature, you can see the breath of somebody if it's cold enough. You see, just because God is invisible does not make Him less of a reality. My favorite illustration on this is one I heard years ago, and that is, let's say that you had the mind and the capacity to know 50% of everything there is to be known in the world. Math, science, history, English, astronomy, everything. No matter what the subject, you know 50% of everything that can be known by every person combined in the world. You have the capacity to know 50% of everything. And you say, well, I don't see God in that. Well, you know where He is? He's in the 50% you don't know. Because what you just admitted is you don't know everything. So the person who says, I know there's no God, or I know that God is a distant deity and he doesn't, He's not interested in the affairs of men, you just hadn't gotten to know the God. You hadn't gone far enough. You don't know as much as you think you know. Because God is there and He wants to be known. Here's why. It is inherent in personalities that we want to know other personalities. We don't live in isolation. We don't crawl off in holes to become holy. We, you know, we live in relationship, and it is inherent in a personality that you want to get to know a personality, another personality. You want to know what they like, what they feel, what they think, who their favorite person is, who their favorite team is, or whatever. You want to know things about that person. And so you ask questions, and you spend time getting to know that. Now, didn't... Now, men... You better help yourself here. Because you did this a lot more when you were courting than you do it now. Didn't you ask a lot of questions when you were dating? You know, well, what's your favorite place to eat? Where do you want to go? Now you get in the car and say, we're going to Burger King. I don't care what anybody says. 
We hate Burger King. I don't care. That's <laughs> where we're going. I'm paying. That's where we're going. What happens when you build a relationship with somebody is you talk. You develop intimacy. You find out things. You begin to share things about your life and share things about your highs and your lows and the things that mean something to you and the things that you're afraid of and the things that you're excited about, what motivates you and what turns you off. That is the developing of an intimate relationship. If that's true in our relationship with our spouse or the person we're dating or somebody we want to get to know, how much more true is that with God that God wants us to share our hearts with Him? God is interested in knowing. He has revealed Himself, His heart, His motive, His purpose. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how do I get to know my Father? I get to know Jesus. Here's where I think we run into trouble. We're in church, and we sit in Sunday school classes year after year after year after year after year after year after year. And we plow the same ground over and over and over again. And we have people who know facts about the Bible, but they don't know the God of the Bible. Well, uh, what's the story in Luke chapter 15? Oh, that's the prodigal son. What's the purpose of it? I I don't know. Why was Noah in the ark? I don't know. I guess because he got a boat that didn't leak. And we know a lot of facts. And we can get our head full of facts. And if getting your head full of facts makes you know God, then what happened to the Pharisees? Because they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Anybody in here got the first five books of the Bible memorized? Every verse Word for word, without error, all five books, including Leviticus. Got the first five books memorized. We don't have the first five books. They, they knew facts. They, they could quote every fact of the Exodus, but they missed the point of the Exodus. They could quote you that God was going to send Messiah, but when He stood right in front of them, they missed Him. You can know facts about God and not know God. I'm amused when I watch. I love to watch the History Channel. I'm amused when I see series like Great Mysteries of the Bible. And they always have a scholar on there. I'm always leery of scholars who don't have heart. They have a scholar on there that says, well... What Paul meant here was, or what, what Abraham was doing, what, God was accommodating him, and they just, they explain away. And you know what they know? They know some historical facts, but you look in their eyes and you listen to their voice, and you don't see anybody that knows God. I want to tell you, I'd rather have a dirt farmer in South Georgia that knows how to trust God for his crop than have a theologian who knows a lot of facts and a lot of doctrine and can dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but he doesn't have any passion for God. The great mystery of the Bible is that it's a mystery and it's something we pursue and something we long to know God. Turn, to me, turn with me in uh, Matthew chapter 7. 
You see, the issue is not, do I know God? The issue is, does God know me? Matthew 7 and verse 21. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many. You want to know why people are always saying they're church members who are lost? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Titus chapter 1 and verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless of any good deed. You say, well, how can somebody prophesy in the name of God and cast out demons in the name of God and in in your name perform many miracles? Listen, the devil's an impersonator. The devil can do miracles. The devil can say to his own demons, leave. The devil's an impersonator. What you do is not how you get to heaven. Who you are is how you get to heaven. Our doing has to grow out of our being. It's not we do things so we will be saved. We do things because we are saved. But it is the being, who we are in Christ, that gets us to heaven. Now there is a God. He can be known and we should long to know Him. Turn, if you would, to Philippians 3 and verse 8. Philippians 3 and verse 8. And two times, in verses 8 through 11, Paul talks about knowing the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I might gain Christ. That's what you get by knowing Him. You gain. And may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So if I'm going to be righteous, and if you're not righteous, you cannot see God. If I'm going to be righteous, it's on the basis of faith. It comes from God. Our righteousness is not something we work up. It's something that God works in. He does it in us that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And let's forget that next part. The power of His resurrection. Everybody wants to know God in the power of His resurrection. I mean, you watch religious television and it's about power. You got power with God. Bless God, give me money. And you got power with God. I don't hear a lot of preaching on religious television about the fellowship of His sufferings. By the way, you don't get one without the other. 
If you want to know Him and the power of His resurrection, you have to be ready to share in the fellowship of His sufferings. And the reason many people don't know God is because they want the good stuff, but they want to take a pass on the other stuff. And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Again, quoting Tozer, he said, He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us He waits so long, so very long, in vain. Psalm 27 and verse 4, David said, One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Now those verses being true, Philippians 3 about knowing Christ, what David says in the Psalms that he desires and seeks that he might dwell in the house of the Lord. Let me just ask you a question. This is Sunday night. Do you really think people that come every other week on Sunday morning are ever going to get it? I can answer that question for you. No way. You cannot have intimacy with God when faithfulness to God's house is not even important to you. Just can't. You, you, you know, you, you can't have the intimacy without the discipline. But what people want is that, you know, just give me a pill that I can take. Give me a magic wand. Wave something over me. Let me, let me have some experience that will immediately put me into an intimate relationship with God. You can't have that if you're not faithful to the things that God loves. It, listen, I have no patience. I'm being honest now. I have no patience with first and third and second and fourth people who want to tell me what the church ought to be. Because if I was only faithful to my wife every other week, I couldn't be pastor of this church. And you wouldn't be married to your wife either if you were faithful every other week. Why is it that faithfulness to church and faithfulness to God's house is an issue with people? Why is it even debatable? Why is it even discussed with people when Jesus says, if you want to know how intimate I want to be with you, it's like a bride and a bridegroom, and that's what the church is supposed to be. Well, Lord, I won't be home tonight. I'll be sleeping around with somebody else. And Lord, I've been sleeping around with somebody else on Saturday night, so I'm too tired to get my family up and get to church on Sunday morning. Now let's all get real honest. Nobody gets intimate with God on their own schedule. We get intimate with God on God's schedule. That's not legalism. That is an intentional commitment of our heart to be where God says we're supposed to be. And if all I've got is one verse, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, I've got enough biblical evidence to say it's not optional whether people come to church. And I can tell you this, the Sunday morning crowd's never going to get it. That doesn't mean I hate the Sunday morning crowd. I feel sorry for them because every week of their life, 
They're missing blessings. They're missing blessings. They're missing the power of God. They're missing growth in their life. They're missing opportunities to get to know God. And, but then what they do, the first time when they get in trouble, they want the preacher right there for them. God, you got to come through for me. I'm in trouble. I was here 20 times last year. Gave $2 every time I came. Bail me out. Answer my prayers. Folks, intimacy is a two-way street. God gets intimate with people that He can trust with His intimacy. And if we're fickle, and if our eyes are darting off always to other lovers and to other things that sway our attention and vie for our affection, if we are fickle in our love, then we cannot expect to know God in the deepest sense of understanding. You see, if I don't know Him, I can't love Him. If I don't love Him, I can't trust Him. And if I don't trust Him, I can't please Him because the Scripture says, without faith it's impossible to please God. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And by the way, iniquity doesn't always just mean perversity. Iniquity is not doing what you know you're supposed to do. The Scripture says knowing what is right to do and not doing it is a sin. If I've got sin, I break fellowship with the Father. And if I break fellowship with the Father, then I break my intimate relationship with Him. And until I get it right and I say I'm sorry and I'm wrong and ask for forgiveness, then that wall is built up, the barrier is built up, and I don't have the connection there that I'm supposed to have. Now there's a process... We don't become spiritual giants overnight. I feel further behind today than I felt 10 years ago. I feel like there's more of God to know and less time for me to get to know it. But it doesn't happen overnight. It is a process. And in the process of getting to know God, there's an interesting verse that I, I've always kind of looked at and, and thought of that verse in one way until this week. And that's where Paul says in Corinthians that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are Christ representatives. Now, how can I represent Christ if I'm not intimately acquainted with His ways? You see, to represent Christ... I have to be intimately acquainted enough with Him to sense in my heart of hearts to have the peace of God and the God of peace that I'm doing what He would do if He were in this situation. When a person serves as an ambassador for the President of the United States, they serve at the wishes of the President of the United States, at the will of the President of the United States, and also to carry out the policies of the President of the United States. So they represent the President of the United States. And so when they speak, they are speaking on behalf of the President. Now, I'm involved in this project and have been for several years with Warren Wiersbe with Two Prophets You. And I've got to tell you, I, I edit my articles more for that than I do when I'm writing them just for our church. Because his name and my name are on that webpage. And so I have to think, because of the broad audience that he has and the lines that he crosses denominationally, one of the things I have to think of, now, will this represent him well? 
Not just what I think, not just what I feel, because if, it's, you know, if I'm going to do that, I'll do my own webpage just for what I think and what I feel. But when somebody else shares that with me, then I have to think seriously about am I representing them in what they would say in that kind of situation. So it causes me to edit and to pause and to think and sometimes to cut and to paste so that I don't misrepresent because I don't want to get a phone call from Lincoln, Nebraska to say, why'd you do that? Two years ago, John Maxwell asked me to be a coach for him and simply meant to take some ministers and to train them and to spend time with them and, and to invest in them. And so we had finished up some training time. There were about 20 of us in the room, and we had finished up some training time, and we got to the end of it, and, and uh, I asked the question that I knew needed to be asked. So I said, John, what is it that you want from us? And this is what he said. He said, Michael, I expect you to represent me well and to not embarrass me. I expect you to be my ambassador, to represent me well and to not embarrass me. Now, is that a fair thing for somebody to ask if you're going to work for them? Represent me well and don't embarrass me. Isn't that what Jesus wants us to do? Represent Him well and don't embarrass Him. And I go back to what I said this morning. As members of Sherwood Baptist Church, we need to represent what this church stands for. That cross is out there on that prayer tower for a reason. It represents that we unapologetically stand by the cross. We read scripture the week before we moved in this building and that Bible sits on a shelf underneath this pulpit open to Psalm 119 and it was read around the clock until we finished the reading of it and that Bible is here for a reason. If you pulled up this carpet and please don't but if you pulled up this carpet right about here where I stand is a quote by C.H. Spurgeon that says, let he who does not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ be damned. Because I want everybody that walks into this church now and when I'm gone to know that you better never stand in this pulpit of this church and preach anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's important because it's His church it's not ours to make up what we want to believe or what we want to do or how we want to... It's His church. It's not mine, it's His. And so it's important that we represent Him well. And one of the things I say from time to time, I hadn't said it in a while to the staff, is the, what I, all I ask of you is that you represent me well. Because you see, when a staff member goes to the hospital, they're going in the name of the church, but they also represent me. If, if they're rude, then that means that people may think I'm rude. And I have been at times. <laughs> Try not to be. But that you represent. I'm, I'm here on behalf of. Why? When I was a staff member, I was always there to represent the pastor in whatever situation I was in. I was there on behalf of the pastor. 
And I work for some tough guys. And I want to tell you, I wanted to know them and I wanted to be close to them, but at the same time I held them with great respect that I wouldn't do anything that I would be called in the office and say, why would you say that? I just didn't want that. Say, well, you lived in fear. No, I lived in reverence for those who are in authority and respect for those who are in authority. We've lost a sense of that in our whole culture. You know, you, some of you now have people working for you. They don't care whether they represent you well or not. They walk in and lose business for your company because they don't care if they represent you well. You see, everybody represents somebody. You represent your family. You represent your family name. You represent a company, a school, a church. And if I'm going to know God, then I'm going to know what's on His heart. And when called on to represent Him, I'm going to be conscious of the fact that it's not me, but it's Him that needs to be in the forefront. So let me give you some practical suggestions. First of all, if you're going to get to know God, this is a no-brainer. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to read your Bible. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. The Amplified Bible in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Every scripture is God-breathed, given by His inspiration, and profitable for instruction, for reproof, conviction of sin, for correction of error, and discipline in obedience, and for training in righteousness, in holy living, in conformity to God's will, in thought, purpose, and action, so that the man of God may be complete and proficient, well-fitted, and thoroughly equipped for every good work. The psalmist said in Psalm 40 and verse 8, Your law is within my heart. You see, it's not just enough to read the Word. You have to love it, and it's not just enough to love it. You have to apply it. You see, the Bible was not given for information's sake. The Bible is a love letter from God to us to tell us how much He loves us and what He expects from us. So first of all, I need to read my Bible. Secondly, I need to obey what God says. Obedience is not optional. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Confession is necessary for intimacy. Psalm 119 in verse 59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Well, I can tell you, I'm just, I'm going to be honest. My favorite hymn is, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For Thee, all the folly of sin I resign. The last line says, If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. We sang that, what, a couple of weeks ago? You know how many people told a lie when they sang that song? If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, it's right now. Look at my heart, Lord. There's never been a time when I loved you more than I love you right now. It's just as wrong to sing a lie as it is to say one. And some people, the first thing they thought was, oh great, a hymn. But they never thought about what the hymn said. If ever I love thee, it's right now. Now let's ask ourselves a question. Has there been a day, has there been a moment, has there been a season in your life, in my life, when we love Jesus and we're in greater fellowship with Him than we are right now? You see, it's easy in a marriage or in your relationship with God to still both be riding in the front seat, but no conversation going on. No communication. You're still there. You're still together. But there's no conversation. Millions of copies of the book, The Quotations of Chairman Mao Zedong, have been printed In the foreword of the book, the editors write these words. In studying the works of Chairman Mao, one should have specific problems in mind. Study and apply his works in a creative way. Combine study with application. First study what must be urgently applied so as to get quick results and strive hard to apply what one is studying. In order to really master Mao and say tongues, thoughts, it is essential to study many of Chairman Mao's basic concepts over and over again. It is best to memorize important statements and study and apply them repeatedly. Studying Chairman Mao's writings, follow his teachings, act according to his, struct- his instructions, and be his good fighters. Now let me ask you, If that's what it takes to be a good communist, what does it take to be a good Christian? Study and apply the principles of God's Word. I'm afraid that the people who are members of Greenpeace are more committed to their cause than the church is committed to ours. I'm afraid that the abortionists are more committed to their cause than we are to knowing our God. I'm afraid that the socialist and the humanist know more about what they believe than we know about what we believe. 
Christians are the most ignorant group of religious people on the face of the earth. Muslims know more about their faith than we know about ours. Jews know more about their faith than we know about ours. Mormons know more about their faith than we know about ours. Jehovah's Witness know more about their faith than we know about ours. And yet we thump our chest and say, we have the answer. Not by the way we're living, we don't. You see, we have almost 3,000 members of this church. We have about probably 600 or so here tonight. If I was an agnostic driving by and I saw empty parking spaces in a church that proclaims on television every week, every day of the week almost, well, we got the answer. And I watched the television and I saw empty seats. I'd say they must not care about their God. If I saw empty parking spaces, I'd say it must not mean enough to them to go back on Sunday nights. If I saw days look on eyes instead of a heart in tune with God, I'd say, well, it must not mean much. They're just going because they feel obligated. Now, let me ask you, do you really want to know God? Or is it just something that's out there on the periphery? Good if it's convenient, but it cramps my style any. I may just take a pass. If you're going to be a good soldier, you have to be familiar with your equipment. And if we're going to be good soldiers of Christ, we have to be familiar with the equipment that He's given us. And the equipment He's given us is the Holy Spirit and this Word and prayer. And that's how we get to know Him. I want to ask you to stand. We're going to worship. Now, worship can be just singing songs. Or worship can be an act of love. Worship.